They say that Belgians and Greeks do it. Nice young men who sell antiques do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. In the best upper sets do it. Lithuanians and Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. The Dutch in old Amsterdam do it. Not well, one of those people is very famous for being a singer. The other is very famous for methods of communication that involve things other than singing. Good morning. This is The Other Side of Midnight on WABC. This is an interview I have been eager and waiting to do for literally years. I have had the privilege of interviewing many talented broadcasters over the years. I've had the privilege of interviewing people that have been an eyewitness to history. I've even occasionally had the privilege of interviewing people that have helped shape history, especially the history of broadcasting. And even once or twice had occasion to talk to some really gifted storytellers. But This is probably the only occasion that I can think of that all of those entities, all of those people are the same person. Now, the challenge when you interview somebody that has had the kind of career that Dick Cavett has had is to really scratch all of the conversational itches that you seek to scratch. Now, on the one hand, he has so many great stories about so many different people and so many different experiences that you want to talk about that. On the other, you want to get his take on what's happening in the world at large. But selfishly, as somebody that would like to improve my craft as a talk show host, how often do you get an occasion to talk to one of the best talk shows of all time? That being said, I've decided I'm going to try to answer that challenge by dividing this interview into three parts among those three categories. However it goes, though, I am just thrilled to be able to talk with author, columnist, Emmy award-winning talk show host, Dick Cavett. Mr. Cavett, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. It's a real honor. Well, you can call me Mr. Dick. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Mr. Cavett always sounds like my father, um, who was also Mr. Cavett, I guess. But uh, I'm wondering if you should take all the stuff that you've said so far and make a point of moving it to the end of our talk in case nothing good happens in this (laughs) talk that we're together. Fair enough. Well, uh, uh, you know, I'm sure we can do something when it comes to uh, post-production or or editing and move in any direction that makes that makes sense. That makes sense. Now, um, you have had the kind of career in broadcasting that is the stuff of legend. I've said for a long time that longevity to have one hit show is something, but to have multiple hit talk shows in a medium that's known for being uh fleeting when it comes to success and fame is something that's incredibly rare you've had uh hit shows on multiple different networks over the course of close to 40 different <laughs> 40 years but um uh, would you would you agree with the assessment of the BBC and others that yours was the greatest talk show of all time and who was the, that yours was oh oh uh let's see i'm gonna... Can I think about that for a while and get back to you? Um, well, I see. I, I was steeped in talk before I actually got into it because I uh, talked my way into a job with Jack Parr. And I always stayed around, by the way, and watched the show taped. All the older writers and people went home. 
And I thought, why should I go home? I can stay here and watch Jonathan Winters and you know all those great people of the, that time. And Jack was a genius at what he did. By the way, Jack hardly ever gets credit for being a brilliant ad libber, which he was. Groucho complimented him on that. I'll give you an example. It was around Christmas time, I think it was. Anyway, uh, Fat Jack Leonard, forget that part. Fat Jack Leonard, the comedian, <laughs> fat, for those who don't understand that, uh, came on. And Jack told me before air, I'm going to not come back at him. You know, we have to come back at him. And then he throws a line, and then you come back at him, and he throws a line. I'm just going to sit here quietly. Well, Jack did that. And Jack E. Leonard got more and more sweaty and convulsed and confused. And finally, desperately, you felt sorry for him. He, he just he, he said a fact out of his life. He said, uh, you know, my wife's an acrobat. And Jack said she'd have to be. Um, I thought that was well. <laughs> you know, it's funny, both Jack Parr and Johnny Carson added so much to the evolution and the development of the talk show format in general and the late night talk show format uh, specifically. You had the opportunity to work with and for both of them. How did that compare, those experiences of uh, working and writing jokes for Jack Parr versus Johnny Carson on both a personal level and a professional level? Well, in a sense, it was the same job. But, of course, the people were different. So although there were many jokes you could write for both of them, you had to be very much aware of their own personalities, even their own fears and uh, topics that might embarrass them and any other quirks that would guide you in what to write. But they, they were both masters of what they did. And I, I learned a hell of a lot by staying late where everybody else went home and staying for the actual taping of the show. I know that helped me a lot. And I had been watching Jack long before I ever met him. So I never, I don't go back far enough to have watched Jerry Lester. Do you? I, I don't, uh, not, not by a country mile. Uh, you then started doing your own late night talk show on a competing network, competing in late night with Johnny. The thing that I've always wondered about is we've heard so much about Johnny's fallout with Joan Rivers because of her decision to do a competing a late night talk show. It doesn't seem like Johnny had the same sort of enmity towards you for daring to compete with him. How was it that you were able to still maintain a, a cordial relationship with him while being a competitor with a former boss and coworker? Uh, the answer is totally. There were people predicting, you know what, he's going to try to bury you. He can't help it the way he tried to bury Joan Rivers after adoring her for a while. Uh, but with, with Johnny, it was, it was more than, <laughs> it was more than we were both from Nebraska. We uh, just got along so well and there was never a trace of uh that kind of um, competition and dick's people are saying dick's gonna blow me off well hell i was never gonna blow him off the air uh off out of the business or out of new york but in fact i would call him and ask him for advice i think he enjoyed that and mm. we remained very very good friends that isn't usual in show business. 
Oh no, uh, certainly not. I, I mean, uh, that uh, I think speaks volumes about uh, about both of you and the uh, the depth of your your relationship. Now, I did introduce you earlier as uh, as Dick Cavett. Uh, I had read one thing on the internet or somewhere that perhaps I should have introduced you as Dick Cavett. Uh, there is a belief in some quarters that the proper pronunciation of your name is Cavett, not Cavett. Any any chance you'd like to set the record straight on that one? Well, if you run into anybody who thinks my name is Dick Cavett, punch them strongly and sincerely in the face. Uh, I'll I'll handle the lawsuit if you want, or I'll get somebody else to do it. That I have never heard. I've mostly it's been Cavett. Uh, people who see the name for the first time before I was known, as they say. Um, it was Dick Cavett more times than Cabot when they sight read it, but uh, no, it's still Cabot. I don't. The, I once looked in the New York phone book because it's another name you run across very often, and there was a Mary Cabot, and it, I, I still regret never calling her. Maybe she's still there. I would definitely reach out in case she's a distant cousin or something and you ever need a, a kidney in the future. I mean, it, it, it doesn't hurt to have good cordial relations, right? God, I wish I'd talked to you a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're talking with uh, Emmy Award. <laughs> Talking with Emmy Award winning talk show host, legendary figure, uh, has done a, an incredibly uh, successful talk show in the course of, I think, four different decades on five or six different networks. And, uh, you know, yesterday, uh, uh, Dick, if I can uh, call you Dick, uh, yesterday was the 15th anniversary of Steve Jobs unveiling the iPhone with Apple. People may not remember this, but Steve Jobs actually worked with you. He actually recruited you to be a, an early pitch man for Apple, didn't he? Yeah, I was uh, introduced to him. Uh, the Apple was a new word around, but they... Yeah, they did. give me, Actually, I did a funny Apple commercial on Saturday Night Live before any of this happened. So that was another odd coincidence. But yeah, I liked Steve Jobs. We met in a restaurant in Midtown, New York, and he disconcerted me a little at the beginning by saying, what's it like to be Dick Cavett? That's about the only question I've heard that I can't answer. <laughs> I, I should have said it's not like anything. It's unique. <laughs> he sent me many computers, which uh, I imagine it's difficult to return a computer if there's a technical problem. If Steve Jobs is the person that's given it to you, yes, I I, uh, I, I tried not to exploit my knowledge and acquaintance with him, but he was really a a, a a good guy. You can't say that about everybody in our business. You may have noticed. Well, that's for sure. It seems like you've been acquainted with more good guys than bad guys, though. I tell you, reading your book, Brief Encounters, which is a few years old now, but it's still just as relevant uh, today as it was when it came out. And it's largely a collection of columns that you'd written for The New York Times. It's incredible to me the diversity of relationships you've managed to build over the years. You you even wrote that at, for a time you considered Muhammad Ali as your best friend. What's it like to have Muhammad Ali as a best friend, even if it's only in your brain, not necessarily his? I'm still astonished by that in a way. Uh, of course, I met him shortly after he was Cassius Clay way back when. And as he appeared with me on the show, 
dozen times at least, uh, we became quite good. Feel we actually felt like old friends, um, almost like we probably played together as kids. <laughs> and I don't know what that was about, but we very much liked each other. And knowing him was worth knowing a whole lot of other people. <laughs> <laughs> One meeting that I would have loved to have been an eyewitness to is your meeting with uh, James Gandolfini, who played Tony Soprano on The Sopranos, unfortunately no longer with us. But there's been a whole resurgence of interest in The Sopranos because of the prequel that came out uh, a few months ago. When you meet James Gandolfini and you hear that he doesn't sound exactly like Tony Soprano, this character that's larger than life on everybody's TV screen, uh, what is your reaction? Does that take you aback at all? Well, when I, when I met him, I was kind of uh, glad that he didn't sound like Tony Soprano. Not that there was anything wrong with Tony Soprano, but, but the fact that he was truly an actor, that Tony Soprano was a creation of his that his voice was slightly different, his accent and pace were slightly different. And he pointed to the fact that he was really a, a, an artist, a true, true fine actor and a nice guy. Well, I gave him an embarrassing moment once. He was, I was hanging out at the Soprano studio one time and just watching. And uh, I had been studying the Japanese martial art of Aikido and uh, he heard me talking to somebody about I could make myself unliftable with Aikido power, if you'll pardon the expression. And he heard this. He came over and he said, uh, you really think I can't? I said, well, you, it might be difficult. You can try it. Just get me under the arms and lift me off the ground. And he did. And then I said, now, don't be disappointed. Try it again this time and uh, see if I seem a little heavier. He gets me under the arms again. And, no way. I also did that with a couple of professional football players on the air, and they went away scratching their heads. But um, <laughs> if you want to meet me sometime in an alley, I'll teach you how to be unleftable. <laughs> Uh, you know, I think the fact that I have not been as disciplined in my diet as I, I probably should be, that's my, that might have made me unliftable, at least for, for most people. You know, it's funny. Oh, you, don't even, uh, you don't even need a, need a technique, Ben. <laughs> that's exactly. Exactly. I, I just need an extra serving of carbs or two. It, it's funny. So many of our listeners um, know you from the various talk shows that you've done over the years, know you from reading your columns, uh, know you from your incredible work as an MC or just a television personality or media personality in general. But there's a whole younger generation of listeners listening to us right now that know you from the film Forrest Gump. You're in some of the most memorable scenes in that film, interviewing John Lennon and Forrest Gump, the character of Forrest Gump. In that film, Forrest Gump, there's some people that kind of recreated their scene. And then there's other people that were just digital recreations of work they had already done. What was it for you? Did you shoot new scenes for Forrest Gump or did they just take old interviews you'd done with John Lennon and uh, sort of repurpose them for the film? Absolutely. They varied in the way they did those, as you obviously could see. But um, yeah, I went into a studio and uh, Tom Hanks sat over in the corner. We, he wasn't on camera with me, but he amused me 
by when we had a pause and they're setting the equipment or something, he would do something from an old Cabot show. And at one point he went, uh, the Dick Cabot show with Beatle, John Lennon, and imitating Fred Foy, my announcer. Mm. And I saw John on an interview on television somewhere last year or so. And he was asked, uh, did you watch the Cabot show? And he said, I grew up on the Dick Cabot show. So uh, we have a bond there. <laughs> yeah, but uh, that that, is... those, those were variously successful, those bits and that. Uh, but, the, I mean, uh, some were better than others, but they, it, it worked out well. And I think most people didn't see anything wrong with them, though I could. It looked great. It looked great. Sounded great. I would have been none the wiser. And by the way, the radio uh, triviologists in our audience will appreciate the fact that Fred Foy, your announcer, was used to do newscasts right here on this radio station until I think the the mid eighties or so. So he had a a lengthy history with uh, with WABC. It is it is interesting. Your name has popped up a great deal this week in a number of obituaries. Thankfully, none of them happen to be yours. We lost a couple of legends in the field of entertainment. Peter Bogdanovich, the legendary filmmaker, Sidney Poitier, one of the greatest actors of all time. You always have yeah. this theory that that celebrities die in threes. In your view, is it is it an unfortunate coda? to the legacy of Bogdanovich and Poitier that the next well-known person that happened to pass away was Robert Durst? It is interesting. I've always thought that things come in threes was silly, but because uh, anything will come in threes if you wait long enough. Right. When do you start counting? Uh, Yeah, there is that. People swear by that. And they'll say, well, there'll be one more within the next few days. And often there is. So, don't let me take anybody's uh, fun away from them. Uh, speaking of fun being taken away, uh, you know a thing or two about award shows. I think you've been nominated for over over 10 Emmys. Uh, you've won at least three. Uh, this weekend, the Golden Globes decided not to broadcast their award yeah. show because of criticisms over diversity. you have any uh, uh, view about this tradition of broadcasting the Golden Globes ending or at least temporarily being suspended? I, I don't really have much to say about that. I uh, I, I actually did never notice. I should maybe not admit how many blacks and whites and uh, people of various colors were on shows. Uh, it, it, it doesn't bother me. I once got into a thing, though, when, uh, oh, God, what was it called? Um, a, a, a Broadway play that was a huge hit. And... Musical too, and there was oh, a Chinese character in it, and uh, oh, it's vastly famous. Anyway, the actor who had played it in London came over here to play it. They brought the great smash hit here intact as it was in England, but there were protests here that he should not be allowed to play, and you'll pardon the old expression, Oriental, because he was a white person. Um, that that it should be. A, of course, obviously, most intelligent people would re- agree that the person best qualified to play the part should play it, uh, whatever his color, age, or height is. Um, was the show Miss Saigon? I think I remember that controversy. Was that at yes, Miss Saigon? 
Thanks. And I, yeah. I, um, in fact, I wrote a piece protesting this about the Times and saying how oh, I'm sorry that my union, Actors Equity, had decided to practice racism in not allowing this brilliant actor to play his part in America. And then I, I had a line with several people cut out and sent to me that they appreciated. I said, why was Richard Burton allowed to play Hamlet? Were there no Danes out of work? <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of people in the gangster community were upset that James Gandolfini, never having had any history with organized crime, was able to play a mob boss. I mean, it's just silly. The more you think about uh, it's acting for a reason. You're pretending to be someone else, as, as you know, better than me. It, it is interesting, the things that become controversies in the 21st century, which you would never have thought would be controversies in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Now, uh, there was actually an article in the Jewish newspaper The Forward recently wondering if it's time to retroactively cancel Norman Mailer because of his uh, appearances on your show where he was oozing with machismo. Uh, Once somebody's dead, don't you think the clock should run out on canceling them? Say, Say the last two words again. I, I, on, uh, uh, don't you think when someone passes away, the the clock should run out on canceling them or uh, kind of uh, making them no longer politically correct? Yeah, that's nonsense. Uh, I despise the people who hold that view. Is that too harsh for you? <laughs> no, please. It's exactly. Uh, yeah, I would expect nothing, nothing less. And uh, uh, you know, I we're, we're talking with oh, the people who want to burn books including uh, certain American and world classics, because their children might be badly influenced by them. We know who the best book burners were, and now we are among them. Not for long, probably. Do you think there'll be a backlash, sort of a reaction to the current era that we're living in with uber political correctness? I would hope so, yeah, uh, absolutely, but I'm not sure. The number of people qualified, excellent, intelligent writers and essayists talking about, quite seriously, it's almost over for America's democracy. It it gives you a bit of a chill, and it's being said a lot, and it's awful. Well, somebody that you know who's been controversial for a long time has been Woody Allen. And now it's not enough to go after Woody Allen. Now the all the rage in a lot of aspects of the press and a lot of uh, aspects of Hollywood is to go after anyone that's willing to work with Woody Allen, even though he's not been convicted of any crime or anything like that. Don't you think that's uh, terribly unfair? Yeah, these these are known as the misguided and not overly wise people uh, of all the stupid things. Would they not have worked with Chaplin? Would they not have worked uh, just, uh, well, there are some who probably wouldn't. But yeah, that strikes me as completely silly. And mixing two things, uh, or various things. But uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I despise those people. What do you do for fun these days when you're not despising those worthy of being despised? <laughs> oh, I, I just uh, I try I do try to limit my despicable feeling. Uh, I um, I am a little tired of the uh, pandemic. Is that too controversial a thing to say? 
<laughs> There's nothing that you could say on this program that will be too controversial. In fact, I think you uttering it makes it somewhat more mainstream and less controversial. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a sad. Yeah, I, I am sure you have lost not only a fond acquaintances but friends. I hope not relatives. But it's really, really terrible. I think the the highest number of uh, cases keeps breaking its own record every day. Terrible thing. Yeah, it, it's also a shame how politicized it's become. Uh, you you can't really even have a rational conversation about about public health without somehow politics being injected into it. It's a real shame. I do like what one very prominent and esteemed doctor said recently about the glut in hospitals that anyone unvaccinated goes to the back of the line. And those people who, like them, are willing to endanger others uh, and are too, oh, I wouldn't want to use so vile a word as too dumb to get vaccinated, but uh, why should somebody really needing the hospital and the attention and have saved their life, have it jeopardized by um, fools. Is that the F word these days? <laughs> it is indeed. Yeah, there's a big debate about whether folks that are unvaccinated should have to not only maybe wait uh, in the back of the line, but maybe even pay more in terms of insurance premiums and things of that nature. And uh, I suspect yeah, it's something I that... Bi- expenses. uh that will go on everybody's bill. Yeah, it's really, uh, I think one of the worst things that we remembered about the pandemic is that it made us, so many people, realize how many hopelessly stupid people there are. Yeah, it, it seems there's uh, there's inspiring evidence of uh, of stupidity each and every day uh, in uh, in American society. You, you know, one of the things that uh, I always I, I think like a lot of people that have been fond of your show always admired is that you would be able to do an interview with an entertainer and then do an interview with a doctor where you talk about something like a pandemic. You'd be able to do an interview with a politician and then talk with a a writer. That's not something you see terribly much of on television these days. Everyone sort of seems to stay in their lane, comedy, politics, business, economics, whatever the case may be. How is it that you were able to mix and match? And why don't you think there are more uh, talk show formats these days that sort of emulate what you had done? I don't know. I, I know that in many cases, the, it's really it depends on what the background, the life, the education, the hobbies, the favorite pursuits were of the people who do the shows. Um, I suppose I had been exposed to more types of things than a guy who's a nightclub comic who does a talk show. But uh, I don't I don't see that as any great honor for me. Uh, But I just I would get tired of uh, having to not have Jimmy Hoffa or a presidential candidate or many of the very strangely non showbiz people I had on. Um, I, I had almost everybody in the Watergate family. I even taught the. Oh, I, I forgot his name. Um, 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 name. Name the guy who uh, 
held his hand over a candle and burned it. Oh, G. G. Gordon Liddy. G. Gordon Liddy. Who was it? G. Gordon Liddy. Oh, G. Gordon Liddy, yeah. Yeah, I had him on it. I liked him uh, personally. Um, and uh, but I, 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 I told him once on the air that uh, I knew, no, I said, knowing that you seem to find it pleasant to teach secretaries how to kill someone quickly with a sharpened pencil uh, wherever you go and that sort of thing makes some people kind of suspicious of you. Um, but I happen to know a neckhold, again from Japan, from uh, judo, that is so, it's hard to say so lethal, there can't be degrees of lethal. It's either lethal or it's not, like pregnancy. Um, <laughs> and I said, I, I, I really wouldn't, I would really feel kind of funny teaching it to you. Well, he took it pretty well. After the show, he said, could you show me that lethal neck hold? Yeah. Uh, it was called. And I said, sure. We went into a back room, a dressing room, and G. Gordon Liddy lowered himself slightly in front of me with his back to me. I clapped the hold on him. And I had a mad moment <laughs> when I thought, just a little more pressure, and we would have left, <laughs> lost one of the great Watergate figures of all time. And also uh, not a bad radio talk show host in his own right. That's very funny, though. Well, the fact is that he, he turned to me and in a very solemn, dramatic way said, I thank you for that. What, for teaching him another method of lethality? Or for not I killing it. Never use it. <laughs> In your I'll opinion, what you if you want that? <laughs> what does what makes a good interview? You've done so many interesting interviews with so many people on so many different subjects. What's the key? What's the secret sauce in conducting an effective, interesting, informative interview? I've never been able to answer that to my satisfaction. Um, to be able to talk, to have a fairly wide acquaintance with subject matter and the times and so on. And, um, but I, I keep going back to a moment just before I started on ABC, forgive me if you'd heard me tell this elsewhere, but the phone rang one day and of all people in the world who never make a phone call was Jack Parr. Do you know what I'm about to tell you? Uh, I, I I don't believe so. Please continue. Well, uh, yeah, I was going to, I said, you, are you nervous about doing this? And I said, yeah, I am. I could use some advice. And he said, I I'll give you a piece of advice. Don't do interviews, kid. And I thought, what? What, what do I do? Just uh, sing with the guests or read aloud hmm. to them or don't do interviews. He said, no, no, no interviews. That's, that's, uh, was your favorite this and what's that and uh, how, what was the first time you ever, and what's your, just make it a conversation. Mm. That was the best advice you could get. Now you have to be able to do it, but uh, I, I used to, when I first started out, you have notes and I used to have these notes for each guest and the person who made the notes would give me eight or 10 subjects and some comment I could make about it or whatever. 
And I was so, at the beginning, stuck to those notes that it showed. And actually, my late friend Chris Porterfield was the one who who, who corrected me on this. He said, you know, what, this is the first weeks of the show. You're, you're too stuck with your notes. And he showed me what he meant. This may be slightly exaggerated, but the effect of it was, and so, Dick, we opened the old rusty trunk the hinges squeaked and look as the lid opened. We were stunned, stunned at what we saw. And I would say, do you have any hobbies? <laughs> and he said, follow up with what the subject is. My God. I see so many uh, hosts on radio and television that are so reluctant to deviate from their their prepared script mm-hmm. that the the interview does sound exactly that insipid and uh, it, it's just laughable and I think that's one of the many things that separated your show from uh, what everybody else is doing. Uh, Dick Cavett, it has been a thrill to be able to talk to you for a bit. I do hope you'll come back. I have uh, pages of notes that will, I think, further future conversations that we can have. I, I really appreciate the time and uh, I'm thrilled that uh, for people that weren't able to live through the glory days of your interviews with Muhammad Ali, John Lennon, uh, Norman Mailer, Gore Vidal, Mel Brooks, and others, that those clips are all available on YouTube, or at least many of them, and people can watch them. And in many cases, a whole new generation can be exposed to the to art of the conversation. Or I should say, yeah. Did you get to see yes. that? Yes. Yes. Uh, absolutely. My, my it's on Robert YouTube. Robert Bader, who has done some of the best things I've ever done, uh, Cabot's Vietnam, Cabot's uh, Watergate, and they put together the Ali thing. And I have a wonderful thing of that sort coming up sometime in the coming future. I guess all future is coming. Um, it's it's uh, with Groucho. Groucho, it's on oh. my part so about a dozen times. And it's a string of gem-like moments. Uh, it'll be on American Masters. Well, I, I can't wait to see it, and I hope I hope you'll come back and uh, and chat about it when uh, when when the show is released or poised to be released. Try and keep me away, <laughs> Dick Cavett. Thank you so much for the time this morning, and uh, I look forward to our next conversation. Well, you're not so bad yourself, Frank. Okay. <laughs> thank you. If you yeah. anybody wants to comment on my discussion with Dick Cavett, you can give me a call one eight hundred eight four eight WABC eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. I'm Frank Morano, uh, officially endorsed as not so bad by Dick Cavett. Uh, if uh, nothing else comes to fruition, I may end up putting that on my tombstone. Not so bad. Uh, you can comment eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead.